Well, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Asian Asian Lecture Series. Uh, before we begin the event, uh, we ask that you take a moment to silence all of your devices. My name is Dr. Amanda Wan, and I'm the founder and coordinator of the Asian Asian Lecture Series at the Institute of War Politics. For those who are new to the IWP, we are a graduate school of statecraft, national security, international affairs, and intelligence. We have a doctoral program as well as five master's programs and 18 certificates of graduate study and a continuing education program. The objective of this lecture series is to broaden the scope and discussion on a range of intelligence, foreign policy, and security issues attendant to the Asian geopolitical, socioeconomic, and cultural spheres of influence. Today, we have Colonel David Maxwell, who will be presenting his lecture on Beyond Nuclear Crisis, New and Long-Term Strategy for the Korean Peninsula. Colonel David Maxwell is the Editor-in-Chief of Small Wars Journal. He's a Senior Fellow at the Foundation for Defense of the Democracies a senior fellow at the Global Peace Foundation, where he focuses on a free and unified Korea, and a senior advisor to the Center for Asia Pacific Strategy. He's also a 30-year veteran of the U.S. Army, retiring as a Special Forces Colonel. He has worked in Asia for more than, uh, more than over uh, 30 years, primarily in Korea, Japan, and the Philippines. Colonel Maxwell served on the United Nations Command and Combined Forces Command and United States Forces Korea CJ-3 staff where he was a planner for North Korean instability and regime collapse opens. He later served as the Director of Plans, Policy, and Strategy and then Chief of Staff for the Special Operations Command Korea. He commanded the Joint Special Operations Task Force Philippines, served as a G-3 for the United States Army Special Operations Command, and culminated his service as a member of the military faculty at the National War College. Following retirement, he served as associate director of the, of the security studies program at Georgetown University's School of Foreign Service. Colonel Maxwell is a fellow at the Institute of Korean American Studies, an advisory to Spirit of America, and on the board of directors of the Committee for Human Rights in North Korea, the International Council of Korean Studies, the Council on Korean U.S. Security Studies, the Special Operations Research Association, and the OSS Society and the Small Wars Journal. Well, thank you, Colonel Maxwell, for joining us today, and we look forward to your presentation. Thank you, Dr. Wan. I appreciate uh, the introduction, and I appreciate the opportunity to come to this august uh, institution and uh, in this historic facility. It's always good to, to be here, so I thank you for the, the invitation, and uh, thank you to the Institute of Politics. I really appreciate it. Um, so I'm going to talk about North Korea. and. Uh, Dr. O, or Dr. Wan said uh, I'm going to talk about uh, a new plan, and I'm going to, a spoiler alert, I'm going to focus on a free and unified Korea, um, which, uh, you know, just to say up front, this is what I think is, is really um, what we need to focus on beyond the nuclear crisis, and I'll talk more in detail about that. Um, what I do, in addition to what Dr. Wan said, you know, I really focus, I have a nonpartisan perspective, I'm not a member of any political party, and so... I support our national security and foreign policy regardless of, uh, of who's in power. Um, and I, uh, I, I focus on, on these issues. I also teach a course, uh, um, and I teach often down at uh, Joint Special Operations University. Um, and of course, I edit the Small War Journal. And for you students out there, I'd be happy to talk to you 
about publishing uh, your work. Um, I always tell you, first write for your professors, write to get an A, uh, but always think about publication and developing, uh, turning your work into uh, into published uh, to writing, and, and I can, I'm certainly happy to help you do that. Okay, so just you know some caveats up front. I'm gonna I'm gonna make some uh, pretty bold statements to you today, uh, but I want you to know that I believe in peace on the peninsula. I believe in peaceful unification. I believe in diplomacy. I want to give all of that a chance, uh, but of course I don't believe in weakening the Rock U.S. alliance or our ability to deter war and, uh, and to defend South Korea. Um, like I said, I'm gonna make a lot of statements that are pretty pretty declarative. Uh, they sound like facts, uh, but the fact is, there are no experts on North Korea. Uh, you know, North Korea is the hardest, one of the hardest intelligence targets, uh, and, uh, and really, nobody knows what's really going on inside. So I'm going to give you my views, you know, based on my experience, based on my studying, based on the writings and statements of, from North Korea, from the Kim family regime. But uh, everything I say can and should be challenged. So I'm, I'm happy to uh, uh, to, uh, to take questions and to talk about what I what I uh, what I've said. Uh, so don't you know because I say something that might sound uh, like I'm declaring it as a fact. Um, you know it can be challenged. So the Korea challenge. Um, you know the, the Korean situation is really uh, unique. That small peninsula in Northeast Asia is, of course, connected to all the threats uh, that exist. The, the revisionist and uh, rogue powers, uh, the two revisionist powers we talked about in our last national security strategy, uh, Russia and China, and of course the rogue powers, and I like to call them the revolutionary powers, Iran and North Korea, because both Iran and North Korea declare themselves as revolutionary states. Um, I think... Uh, you know, it's important that we approach North Korea and the Korean security situation uh, from the view of Korea. It's not Iraq. It's not Afghanistan. Uh, and, of course, we don't want to see anything like that happen on the Korean Peninsula. Um, as, uh, as I heard, uh, I read today, Ambassador Trani uh, wrote an article in uh, the Washington Times and saying we need a new strategy based on unification, which I wholly agree with. And he said peaceful unification. And, again, I want peaceful unification. But whether there is peaceful unification or not is really going to be a function of the decisions that Kim Jong Un makes. Uh, and so, uh, you know, it's, we can strive for peaceful unification, but of course, we need to prepare for the worst. And Sun Tzu said, you know, never assume the enemy's not going to attack. You know, make yourself invincible. We, uh, when we were writing the collapse plans in, in North Korea, we said, you know, never assume North Korea is not going to collapse. You know, prepare for the worst. And uh, so I'll, I'll talk a little bit about that as well. Um, you know, there could be war, but whatever happens, it, it's going to take us being able to outthink uh, the problem. And it really have to apply intellectual rigor uh, to uh, what goes on in North Korea. And we need deep understanding of the problem, the problem, the regime, and the people inside uh, North Korea, the Korean people living in the North. And you'll hear me say that. Uh, I try not to say North Korean people. Uh, because, you know, as the South Korean Constitution says, it is a unified Korea. South Korea, the Republic of Korea, is responsible for the entire Korean Peninsula. They have, have sovereignty over the entire Korean Peninsula, which means all the Korean people. Uh, so I don't like to say North Korean people. I like to talk about the Korean people who live in the North, and the Korean people who live in the South. One Korean. Uh, 
And, and of course, when it comes to people from the north, we often talk about defectors from the north. I don't like to use that word either. I have many friends who have escaped from the north. And I like to use escapees. Uh, defector has such a pejorative sounding, uh, I mean, that's such a pejorative connotation. Uh, you defect from your country, you're a traitor to your country. Uh, but those who escape from North Korea, they're not traitors to North Korea. You know, they are escaping from one of the most despotic regimes uh, in the world. And so I like to call them escapees as well. All right. I always start off with these five questions. And I, I, every chance I get talking to uh, uh, policymakers, I, you know, I ask, what do we want in Korea? What do we want to achieve in Korea? In Korea? And, uh, and of course, you know, most people say denuclearization or peace and stability. Uh, and, and those are important. Uh, but uh, the second question really gets to, uh, gets to what we really need to think about. And of course, when we talk about strategy, we talk about ends, ways, and means. Um, and, uh, and so we want to know the ends. Um, I choose not to use the ends, though, because I was mentored by uh, Lieutenant General uh, Jim Dubik. Uh, we shared offices uh, when we were at Georgetown together, and we used to, to discuss this. And he said, now, we really shouldn't talk about an end state because that implies the end. And in strategy, it never ends. There is never an end. Now, yes, we did see an end to the Cold War, but did it really end? You know? and, uh, and so he advocates, and I, I accept his, uh, his reasoning, uh, and I borrow his terms, that you know, what is the acceptable, durable political arrangement? That's really, that's really what we have to see, to, whether it's a military operation or you know, diplomacy. We're, we're talking about acceptable, durable political arrangements that really will support, uh, protect, and advance U.S. interests, and in this case, rock U.S. alliance interests. Uh, and so I asked that question. Of course, the third question is derived uh, from Dr. Jung Pak. Uh, she's the Deputy Assistant Secretary of, uh, of State for East Asia and Pacific. And I've attended many conferences with her, and she always asked the question, who's Kim Jong-un more afraid of, the U.S. military? or the Korean people living in the North. And of course, it is the Korean people living in the North, especially when armed with information, uh, and armed with information about the South, about what life is like in the South. You know, that's really a threat to Kim Jong-un. And of course, we can see uh, the actions of the, the party, the actions of the regime, the crackdown on information inside North Korea. I mean, to this day, that they, they just had another party meeting and talking about uh, you know, demanding absolute loyalty to Kim Jong-un, you know, from the people uh, and from all members of, of society. Uh, and, you know, information from the outside world is forbidden. And, of course, people who, who have access to the outside or are, are caught with information from the outside world are subject to, you know, really tremendous or horrendous punishment. Uh, and so, uh, you know, they are trying to limit information. And that should be a clue for us that... Uh, that if information is a threat to the regime, if it undermines the legitimacy of the regime, uh, maybe we should be uh, helping get information inside North Korea. And of course, if you're familiar with the politics in the South, the previous administration, the threats from Kim Yo-jong, Kim Jong-un's sister, uh, that she made uh, you know, against South Korea and threatened and then actually blew up the liaison building, South Korean liaison <coughs> building inside Kaesong uh, because of the information that escapees are sending over the border. And then, of course, that coerced the previous administration and the, the National Assembly in South Korea to pass the anti-leaflet law. 
uh, you know, because North Korea is so afraid of information. In the previous administration, and their their vision for peace on the Korean Peninsula, really, <clears throat> frankly, in my opinion, was really a, a, a strategy of appeasement, and and it really showed uh, in the passage of this law. So information is really important, and and we should focus on that. Last two, of course, you know, is, is have we seen any indication of North Korea giving up its strategy? And its strategy is based on subversion, coercion, extortion, blackmail diplomacy. Blackmail diplomacy is really uh, the use of increased tensions, threats, and provocations to gain political and economic concessions. That's what the regime is trying to do. Of course, the short-term concessions that it really seeks is the end of sanctions. And we can see that... Uh, Almost everything that Kim Jong-un does is trying to get rid of sanctions. I've heard uh, from, um, from escapees and, and talking to them uh, that the failure to get sanctions lifted in 2018 and beyond is one of the largest failures of the regime in its history. And Kim Jong-un told the elite, told the military, that he would be able to manipulate President Moon and President Trump and get sanctions relief. And the two... Most important things that came out of uh, those both those administrations, or the single most important thing, was they did not lift sanctions, uh, and that continues to put pressure on Kim Jong Un. Of course, sanctions—that's a whole other debate. Uh, North Korea is doing a lot to evade sanctions, being very successful at evading sanctions. We're not applying the sanctions, enforcing them uh, strictly enough. China and Russia are complicit in sanctions evasion. Uh, North Korea is conducting global illicit activities. Uh, around the world, proliferating weapons uh, to conflict areas, all to gain hard currency. But uh, the fact that sanctions have not been lifted uh, is uh, putting pressure on Kim Jong-un. And so have we seen any indication that the strategy of, of Kim Jong-un has, has changed? And it has not. It is the same as his father's and his grandfather's. Uh, and it really seeks you know, domination of the Korean Peninsula. You know, he's using political warfare, blackmail diplomacy, while simultaneously preparing for war, developing advanced military capabilities. But both those paths, both those lines of effort, political warfare and war fighting, uh, seek one objective, domination of the peninsula, and under what I like to call the guerrilla dynasty and gulag state, because uh, I think that really, really describes North Korea. And of course, lastly, uh, have we seen any indication of North Korea giving up its, its supporting strategy uh, to split the alliance, split the ROC-US alliance, which, of course, we assess as the key condition that Kim Jong-un needs to be successful if he conducts a military operation. He needs to drive U.S. forces off the peninsula. Uh, you know, end of extended deterrence, uh, end of the ROC-US alliance, drive U.S. forces off the, the Korean peninsula, and then Kim Jong-un may assess that he has the correlation of forces, the combat power, uh, to be successful if he attacks. Now, I don't believe that. I don't think he'll be successful in, in an attack. Uh, but we have to try to put ourselves in his shoes and, uh, and be concerned with, uh, with that, uh, that potentiality. All right, in a nutshell, you know, I think everybody knows, everybody has heard this so much, that the vital national interest is survival of the Kim family regime. But it's not that simple. Uh, you know, people will say, well, if it's survival, why don't we just pay them off? Why don't we send them to, uh, you know, like we've done with other dictators? You know, you can go live in a DACA in, in Russia uh, or, you know, some mountain area in, uh, uh, in China. And we can pay them off and make them, 
you know, rich for the rest of his life. I don't think he wants that. Uh, I don't think that's that's what he wants. To survive, they need unification. They need to dominate the peninsula. That is what is going to ensure machine survival. And I think it's important to to uh, assess that and to analyze the situation that way because they really need to to achieve that domination in order to survive. And of course, the key condition, as I've already outlined, uh, and lastly, I think it. Uh, the other thing that strategic uh, uh, outcome that, that, that Kim would like uh, in the interim uh, would be to be treated like the former Soviet Union, uh, would be to have arms control negotiations. And there are people that are proposing that. Uh, many, many uh, thinkers out there, uh, uh, thought leaders and uh, you know, think tanks, and uh, there are people that think we should shift from denuclearization to arms control. And that sounds, you know, that sounds logical. Uh, we, we did that with the Soviet Union. Uh, but uh, the problem, I think, that we will face if we, if we uh, move to that is that it will confirm to Kim Jong-un that his political warfare strategy and blackmail diplomacy works. Uh, and what that means is that he will keep his nuclear weapons. Uh, maybe there will be, uh, you know, limitation, uh, maybe reduction. Uh, but in either case, that means he's still going to have nuclear weapons, which is what he wants. Uh, I've often thought that uh, some of the systems that he's developing, you know, we've seen the Wasan 16 and 17 and uh, 18, you know, all these systems. Uh, we've seen some tests, you know, that uh, uh, the 14 and 15. Um, and uh, But I, I wonder sometimes if they develop systems to present us with, uh, with a missile that they, in fact, never intend to develop, but are willing to negotiate away. Uh, and so we need to really be careful about that. But the bottom line is I, I fear, I worry about arms control negotiations and how Kim Jong-un will, uh, will exploit that. And I think, uh, you know, frankly, in, in my opinion, offering to do that will not make Kim Jong-un negotiate in good faith or become a responsible member of the international community. Uh, I mean, even to the level of, of the former Soviet Union, uh, and you know, even that—that's problematic. Uh, but it will not change his behavior. Instead, he will exploit arms control negotiations uh, for his own ends. So, when I talk about Korea, when I think about Korea, I put it in perspective of the Big Five. I think war. I think everybody knows we want to deter war. We want to prevent war. And I think that's really the number one uh, U.S. interest is to prevent war on the peninsula because. If there is war on the peninsula, uh, it's going to have global effects. You've got the second and third largest economies, uh, China and Japan, the tenth largest economy, South Korea. Uh, you've got uh, two nuclear powers, China and Russia. You know, and of course, North Korea, we won't call them a nuclear power, but they possess nuclear weapons. Uh, and, you know, some of the largest armies in the world, uh, concentrated in Northeast Asia. And, of course, those economic ties are global. And, uh, and if something happens on the Korean peninsula, it's going to affect the supply chain. It's going to affect financial markets. It's going to affect all of us here in the United States and around the world. So we have, a, I think, a strong interest to try to prevent war on the Korean Peninsula. And so we must always keep a foundation of deterrence and defense on the peninsula. Now, regime collapse, you know, a lot of people talk about uh, you know, regime collapse would be a good thing. Um, and you know, sometimes you want to be careful what you wish for. Uh, 
I don't think it will be like East and West Germany. Uh, I think that if there is collapse on the Korean Peninsula, it's going to be catastrophic for a number of reasons that I'll, I'll talk about. Uh, the most important, though, the conditions that might lead to regime collapse, which is the loss of the party's central governing effectiveness combined with the loss of coherency uh, and military support for the regime, uh, you know, those conditions could lead Kim Jong-un to make a decision to go to war as his only option to survive. You know, so regime collapse is a dangerous uh, scenario and, and one that we must, uh, we must be very cognizant of. Uh, if it happens, it will likely be catastrophic and there will be some level of conflict. Uh, so we really need to be careful about that. Human rights. Uh, you might wonder why a, a military guy talks about human rights and is concerned with human rights. Well, uh, North Korea is uh, one of the worst countries in, in the world in history for abusing human rights, crimes against humanity. Uh, but not only are human rights a moral imperative, they're a national security issue. Why is that? Because Kim Jong-un must deny human rights in order to remain in power. You know, the, the 2014 UN Commission of Inquiry uh, did a comprehensive study of, of the human rights situation. Uh, and, you know, Justice Kirby from Australia, who led the, the study, you know, they assessed that the human rights uh, abuses in North Korea, the crimes against humanity, are among the worst since World War II. Uh, and, and I would argue that it is 70 years of human rights abuses. You know, they didn't last that long in, uh, in World War II. Uh, so the scale of, of human rights suffering is just you know, beyond our imagination. Uh, and so it's really important. But I'd like to make one point. We focus on North Korea's nuclear power. And the more we emphasize the nuclear threat, the more we legitimize the regime. But when we talk about human rights uh, in North Korea, it's a threat to the regime. It undermines the legitimacy of the regime. So if you think about influence, uh, an influence campaign, you know, maybe we should talk less about the nuclear threat and more about human rights. Uh, and for a lot of reasons, uh, because it's the right thing to do. It gives hope to uh, the people inside North Korea who don't really understand, you know, the, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that that uh, they they have a right to uh, to live by, uh, and so. Uh, we, we should understand uh, the uh, human rights situation, and we should take a human rights upfront approach. I'm reminded of Ambassador Bob Joseph, who serves on the Committee for Human Rights in North Korea. And he was in the Reagan administration and the Bush II administration uh, doing arms control negotiation. And, um, and when uh, Reagan was negotiating with the Soviets, he was told by the negotiators, the professionals, that he should set aside human rights. Uh, because you don't want human rights to get in the way of a negotiation uh, and uh, a successful negotiation yeah, because it will just block everything. Uh, but President Reagan did not, did not follow that advice. You, know, you heard him say, tear down that wall. Uh, and uh, and they, they did not hesitate uh, to talk about human rights. We should do the same with North Korea. Uh, we should never, ever uh, sacrifice human rights in North Korea in the hopes that there will be a denuclearization agreement, uh, because I, I just don't think, I, I don't think that by avoiding human rights, that it will lead to a denuclearization agreement. So we may as well focus on human rights, because you know you got to do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. Uh, 
the asymmetric threats uh, that uh, exist in North Korea. You know, we talk about nuclear weapons, missiles, their special operations forces, uh, but also their global illicit activities, the counterfeiting, the drug trafficking, uh, all the things they do around the world to gain hard currency uh, as well, overseas slave labor, uh, all these things, and of course, cyber operations, and then subversion. They are actively trying to subvert South Korea, to subvert the South Korean political system, to weaken it, to make it collapse, so that it can dominate uh, the, uh, the Korean Peninsula. Of course, last is unification. And unification is the toughest challenge. You know, it's the difficult path, but it's the right path. Uh, and I think it is, it is the solution. All right, uh, subversion, as I mentioned. Uh, you know, North Korea has the United Front Department, like all communist countries, the 225th Division or Bureau that uh, uh, that's really charged with uh, charged with infiltrating agents into the South to create political parties and to subvert the political system. But really, when it comes down to uh, it, this is an ideological war between North and South. You know, it really is which values do the Korean people want to subscribe to? You know, their shared values, the U.S. and the ROC, uh, or the values, you know, in air quotes, the values of Kim Jong-un and the Kim family regime. Uh, and I think, you know, to us, I think it's it's clear uh, which values I think the Korean people would uh, would subscribe to. And if given the choice in the North, I think they would subscribe to these as, as well. So there's an ideological component to uh, uh, the conflict on the Korean Peninsula. And as I said, uh, North Korea is conducting uh, its uh, political warfare, I like to say, Political warfare with Juche characteristics, but again, actively trying to subvert South Korea. All right, so this is some of the challenge, and uh, you know we really need to do a deep dive into the culture of, of North Korea. Uh, but let me just say that you know the, the the country, the system that Kim Il Sung developed, you know, really rested on uh, you know, this anti-Japanese partisan warfare. He built this myth that he was a great guerrilla leader that. Commander of the 1st of the 88th Special Independent Sniper Brigade. Uh, and he, he claims, and the myth of North Korea claims, uh, that they liberated Korea from the Japanese. And I think, uh, I think if you read Sid Seiler's book uh, on the, the, the myth, the, the building of the legend, uh, I think Kim Il-sung conducted like one military operation you know, during World War II. They attacked a Japanese police box and killed about 15 policemen. Uh, and that was really the extent of his... his Operations. You know, he wasn't a great world leader, but they turned it into this, uh, uh, you know, this great myth. But that permeates everything. It permeates their culture. You know, and that's why Adrian Buzo, the Australian author and researcher, you know, he wrote a book entitled it "The Guerrilla Dynasty." And that's why I use the term "guerrilla dynasty." Uh, this ethos uh, really, uh, really permeates everything in North Korean society. And of course, it's what we need to understand. Uh, because that indoctrination is going to cause many people to live to fight another day. And we really need to be uh, concerned with that. All right, 1953, the Armistice Agreement. Uh, you know, buried in there, in paragraph 60, it talks about the Korea question. And I use the Korea question uh, in, in this way, the way that it's described here. The Korea question is really, when you really read this paragraph, they're talking about the unnatural division of the Korean Peninsula. And the military leaders who signed the armistice, you see Mark Clark and General Harrison and Namil and Kim Il-sung and uh, Peng from, uh, from China, uh, you know, they, 
recommend that the political leaders come together to solve that problem within 90 days. And there was a conference in Geneva about a year later, uh, and it really never went anywhere. Uh, and you know, this question has never been an answer. There must be a solution to the Korea question. And you know, that's either two countries, one country, two systems, or a united republic of Korea, uh, a unified peninsula. I think unification is the only way to resolve the Korea question. <clears throat> Talk about collapse. Uh, the problem with collapse, the problem with war, the problem with the complexity, the uncertainty and complexity of the Korean situation, it really causes planning paralysis, strategic planning paralysis, because nobody can really, really foresee what's going to happen. And, and all the scenarios are really, really mind boggling to deal with. And, and so it really puts us in a position where we don't, we really don't plan for it, we don't think about it. And we only think about lesser objectives, denuclearization, uh, maintaining the status quo, uh, preventing war, which I don't, uh, I don't discount. Uh, but my belief is the only way we're going to see an end to the threats is through unification. Uh, and we should, be, we should focus on that. Now, our presidents have. You know, going back to 2009, every president in South Korea and the U.S. in their joint statements, their joint vision statements, have talked about peaceful unification. You know, these are the ones from the joint mission of 2009. And President Lee and President Obama, uh, President Park and President Obama, uh, Trump and Moon said that uh, South Korea would uh, take the lead in achieving peaceful unification. President Biden has talked about uh, unification in a speech at Yonsei University when he was the vice president. And in his special uh, op-ed that he wrote for Yonhap in uh, October of 2020, right before the election, the only op-ed he wrote in a foreign paper, he talked about unification. Yet, when he had a summit last May in 2021 with President Moon, and then this past summit with President Yoon, they did not talk about unification. I, you know, I'll give President Yoon's administration the benefit of the doubt. You know, they, it was 10 days after the inauguration, they had the summit. Uh, so, Perhaps they, they haven't had time to work through the agenda. I do know that uh, the National Security Advisor, or I've heard uh, that the National Security Advisor for President Yoon is a strong proponent of unification. Uh, but, uh, but the fact is, we didn't talk about it, and I think we should. Uh, all right, so these are the four paths to unification. Uh, as I said, it's, it's uncertain, complex. We don't know how we're going to get to unification. Obviously, peaceful unification is the standard. It's the desired path. We want peaceful unification. But I think like you, I think most people would, would agree that uh, Kim Jong-un is not going to capitulate. Kim Jong-un is not going to give up and go quietly into the night and uh, you know, take a, a large sum of money and a buyout and, uh, and go, go live the rest of his life out. I don't think that's really possible. And I certainly don't believe that the 48 million Koreans living in the South would acquiesce to the North Korean system. Uh, you know, they're not going to uh, to allow themselves to uh, to live under the the uh, the yoke of, uh, of the North Korean Juche ideology and, and their quasi-communist system. Uh, so, why do we focus on peaceful unification? Number one, it's the right thing to do. It's the morally right thing. But I will tell you. It's right because it's the most difficult 
to plan for. Not because Kim Jong-un and, and the government of South Korea will never come to agreement. Planning for peaceful unification is the most complex. And you have to integrate two economies, two political systems, two militaries. Uh, and planning to do that is very difficult, very complex. But South Korea should plan for that. And the reason is, is because whatever path leads to unification, everything you do for peaceful planning for unification will have application in any other path. And so you plan for the hardest. Plan for peaceful unification. It may seem counterintuitive, uh, but plan for that because if there's war, you know, God forbid, you know, and this is, I, I hate to say it this way, war leading to unification will be an easier path than peaceful unification. Of course, we don't want that to happen. We don't want to expend the blood of military and civilians that will be expended, the treasure, but it will level North Korea physically and, and metaphorically uh, and make unification easier. But everything you plan for in peaceful unification will have a role and will have application in that scenario. Uh, we don't want to have war. Regime collapse, as I said, could lead to war. And there's one other path that is an outlier, and that's internal change inside North Korea. Not regime change externally driven, but changing dynamics inside North Korea. Again, it's the hardest target. It's difficult to understand, but we are seeing you know, we saw during the arduous march of 1994 to 1996, the famine, the rise of the markets, the Dongju money class. Uh, we are seeing indications inside North Korea that there is some resistance. Of course, the, the system, the, the sophistication of the Songbun system and the entire security apparatus inside North Korea is designed to prevent any kind of resistance. And, um, you know, so they are... Uh, that, that system is functioning, maintaining oppression over the people, uh, but we are seeing signs. Uh, what we don't know is what happens inside Pyongyang, inside the elite, uh, what might happen uh, to Kim Jong-un. I asked this question of policymakers. Think about this. What would you do today, if you learned today that Kim Jong-un was dead? What actions would you take if he was dead? Okay, if you were the U.S. government, the South Korean government? You know, I, I know what our, you know, I know what we would likely do, and that would be to wait and see and see how things play out. We saw that happen in 2011 when Kim Jong Il died, uh, and uh, but maybe there's, maybe there's something else. You know, there's no succession mechanism in the North. Uh, their party documents, their constitution doesn't plan for that. We don't know if he has designated his sister as a successor uh, or someone else. Uh, so we don't know what's going to happen. But have we wargamed out what we might do if we learn that he dies today? And I say that if we learn that he, if we learn today that he died, not that he died today, because it might be some time before we learn that he, he, he does, uh, he has passed. Of course, the Chinese will probably know pretty quick. They'll probably get out. But you know, talking to escapees, uh, the passing of Kim Il Sung and the passing of Kim Jong Il, the same thing happened both times, and that was they locked down the country. Uh, close the borders, and they bring the party members back to Pyongyang, and then they have the party meeting that will determine uh, and, and validate the succession, who of course has already been chosen. We don't know if a succession has been chosen. The problem is right now, the country is locked down. 
uh, and we can't really see uh, if if something happens, whether there is that movement of party officials to have that meeting. Um, we could see it in other times. Our diplomats, you know, not ours, but uh, foreign diplomats in Pyongyang have a hard time seeing what's going on. Uh, we often get the diplomats from European countries come to Washington, Washington D.C., uh, and we get to sit down with them. And, and one of the, the British uh, diplomats, he made this comment that I think is so apt. He said, Pyongyang is the only capital city in the world that you have to leave to find out what's going on inside. <laughs> and, uh, and I think there's, you know, there's some truth to that. Uh, one, one diplomat told me, I asked him, I said, you know, so when have you ever had engagement with, with Kim Jong-un? He said, well, in the three years that I was there, I, I saw him three times, and that was at their military parade, and he said, well, they had all the foreign diplomats in one area, and he said one time he walked by, but when he walked by, he turned his head away from and never looked at us. And so that's the closest I ever came to engagement uh, with Kim Jong-un. So, uh, uh, you know, the diplomats do not have a lot of access and, uh, and a lot of understanding uh, of what's going on inside North Korea. Uh, so, but, you know, if something happens to Kim Jong-un, we need to be ready. Uh, and of course, if new leadership emerges inside North Korea, and if that new leadership has been um, shaped with information, shaped with knowledge of the outside world, shaped with an understanding of opportunities, maybe they will seek peaceful unification. And if that occurs, if, if someone emerges that seeks peaceful unification, all of the South Korean planning for peaceful unification will apply. So that's why I think South Korea should plan for peaceful unification, regardless of the, the security conditions, the political conditions, uh, and the Ministry of Unification in North Korea should be the planning element for that. All right, I want to talk about information and influence. This is the most, uh, I think that the most important thing that we can do, and I say we, I really mean the ROC-US alliance, uh, led by Koreans, supported by the US. Uh, North Korea is the most ripe uh, environment, a laboratory for psychological operations. Uh, there is a thirst for, for knowledge inside uh, inside North Korea, um, and and we really need to uh, uh, to be able to use information, but we need to 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 use it to shape this resistance uh, and and try to shape you know this guerrilla mindset and uh, and give them opportunities uh, to uh, to be able to develop uh, and really reach uh, reach leadership levels uh, and ultimately to replace Kim Jong-un on their terms, not on our terms, not initiated uh, by us, uh, but with our support from a policy perspective, information perspective, uh, it really needs to be organic, and we need to be ready for that. Now, for information influence activities, uh, we really need a comprehensive strategic campaign for that, uh, a holistic campaign uh, that is uh, that allows Government agencies, military, civilian, and civil society. The only people we really see doing this today are the escapees. Uh, and now the ones in South Korea are doing this, breaking their own laws, uh, which uh, is it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. Uh, and of course, uh, if you saw the recent news uh, with the COVID outbreak in the North, uh, the Propaganda and Agitation Department is blaming the balloons in South Korea <laughs> for bringing COVID to the North. You know, they're sending medicines, they're sending information, 
Uh, but uh, uh, you know, North Korea has has accused uh, the escapees of, of sending COVID to the north, which is kind of typical for them. But we are not taking advantage of what's happening inside uh, North Korea, uh, and there's so much potential. The growth of smartphones inside North Korea, uh, they, they continue to grow um, and, uh, and, and be used. Now, of course, they're not connected to the, the, the global uh, grid, you know, the internet, uh, but I think there's ways to do that. Of course, they are connected across the Chinese border. Escapees use cell phones to get money to their families inside North Korea. Um, you know, and, and, and of course, North Korean security services turn a blind eye when they take a cut of that uh, to allow that money to, to get to, uh, uh, to families inside North Korea. That's an opportunity uh, for information. Uh, and there's, there's much more to, uh, that can be done. Uh, you know, these are some of the things that, uh, uh, that we should focus on. I'm sure you've all watched Crash Landing on You, the Netflix video there. Of course, many conservatives in, in South Korea didn't like it. And, and one of the reasons they didn't like it was because it portrayed uh, the, uh, the Koreans in the North, including the Korean military, as human beings. And right before COVID, I was at a meeting with uh, three escapees, including the one soldier who escaped in 2017, crossed the DMZ, was shot, wounded. And I asked them, I said, what did you think of crash landing on you? And what do you think the soldiers inside North Korea who are watching this, what do they think? And they said, that it makes them want to come to the South even more. And, and one of the things that struck them was that this show portrayed Koreans in the North as human beings, not as the enemy, not as monsters. And, and it was important to them because they have never seen anything coming from North Korea, from the regime, from the propaganda and agitation department that ever portrayed the South as human beings. You know, they're always puppets of the U.S. They're, you know, less than human, uh, and, and so uh, you know they they appreciate that. And this is really important because uh, you know the, the the messages in these Korean dramas can really have an effect. Um, uh, Max, um, I think of his name now. Uh, Max Brooks, Father Mel Brooks. This old guy's Mel Mel Brooks, the great. Uh, maker and comedian, but Max Brooks wrote uh, The Zombie Apocalypse, World War Z, a movie everybody I'm sure has, saw, has seen. I was doing a project with him where we used science fiction writers to try to forecast the future, to give a look at the future. One of the things he told me when he wrote the book, uh, he did a lot of research with the National Institute of Health, the Center for Disease Control, and how to, how to deal with pandemics. And in the book, he details quite extensively how to deal with pandemics in the context of managing the zombie apocalypse. And he said, now, I couldn't write a book and tell people how to deal with pandemics. He said, but when I talk about zombies, everybody's interested. <laughs> and, you know, it's entertaining. But he said, I, I used real techniques that are actually used. And he said, by doing that, you plant seeds in the minds of people. And, uh, and when faced with similar situations, they might be familiar with that. In the context of North Korea, if you create dramas about unification, about land ownership, about you know, how uh, politics will work at the local level, and you create stories, then you, you start familiarizing the people in the North on what it's going to be like, and you're planting seeds, and you're more likely to, uh, to get cooperation 
when faced when they are faced with a, a collapse situation. And so that's why we want to use information uh, to try to try to educate, try to to influence uh, the people in the north. Of course, we want to identify key communicators. The thirty thousand escapees. Not all of them will be key communicators, but many of them are. There are many people that uh, uh, that have escaped from the north that have uh, that have reputations and. Of course, we see, of course, in the South, we have two uh, assemblymen who escaped from the North, and now they have political, uh, you know, they're successful politicians. Uh, Miss Park in, in the UK, you know, she's, won for, she's run for election three times and lost, uh, but she's, you know, she's a great example of, of somebody who's in the UK political system from the North. And uh, we see many escapees who, who are successful uh, in South Korea and around the world. And those... Examples should be transmitted to the North uh, to uh, to show what their uh, fellow citizens have been able to do. You know, for uh, for all of you students, you know, this is my research project. You know, map the human terrain inside North Korea. We really need to know what's going on uh, down to the local level, the Indian the, the the political leaders at the village level. Uh, you know, we need to understand the market activity. We need to understand. Uh, there's a great uh, professor, William Brown, uh, who, uh, he's an economist, and he understands the North Korean economy like no other. Uh, and he, he tracks these markets and the market prices. Uh, and we really need people to become very, very knowledgeable about, uh, about this, uh, to understand what is happening uh, throughout, uh, throughout the North. So the bottom line is, you know, the only way we're going to see an end to the nuclear program, an end to the crimes against humanity, is through unification. You know, a secure, stable, non-nuclear, economically vibrant, uh, North Korea, unified Korea uh, that is, uh, you know, based on liberal democracy, free market economy, uh, individual freedom, liberty, uh, human rights, and rule of law. Uh, and that's, that's really what we need. It's a, a united Republic of Korea uh, that will be... Uh, called uh, You Are Okay or You Rock. Uh, so with that, I will, uh, I'm happy to, uh, to take your questions and, uh, and discuss any of these, uh, these concepts here. Again, the bottom line is um, we're not going to see long-term peace and stability on the Korean Peninsula until there's a free and unified Korea. Thank you. because the alliance remains strong, and I, I, you know, grateful for that. But I think uh, number one is uh, they, uh, in their propaganda, they say that it is the United States and South Korea together has the hostile policy towards the North. And in their writings, you know, how they define that is the hostile policy is, of course, our exercises. Uh, it is the military alliance. It is our extended deterrence. It is our nuclear threat against them. Uh, and, and so um, what they are trying to do is establish the conditions with those who, who believe that, uh, you know, the way to negotiate with the North is to give them the security guarantees that they want. And unfortunately, 
we've given them security guarantees. You know, we've, we've said publicly, we have no intention to attack the North. We don't seek regime change imposed by us. Uh, you know, we want peace and security on the Korean Peninsula. But that's not good enough for them. You know, they want to see concrete action. And the only way that they will uh, have a security guarantee is an end of the alliance, removal of U.S. troops, and an end of extended deterrence in the nuclear umbrella over South Korea and Japan. And so they are pressing for that uh, you know, over and over again. And in their writings, in their negotiations, uh, and, and in everything they do, it is the U.S.'s fault. And unfortunately, we have people uh, in South Korea and the United States who, you know, to this day will say, it's our fault. We're the aggressor. You know, if we would just pull our troops out, North Korea would, would they wouldn't need nuclear weapons. They'd give up their nuclear weapons. Um, I would not take that bet. You know, I, that, that just wouldn't make it for me. So they have a, an active policy. And, and of course, the other thing is, they accuse us of having a hostile policy. They're the ones with a hostile policy. The rocking U.S. forces that are deployed in South Korea are in defensive positions, five defensive belts to defend South Korea. North Korean forces are postured for the attack. 70% of their forces are deployed between the DMZ and Pyongyang to conduct offensive operations. Uh, you know, they talk about our exercises. They conduct a winter and summer training cycle, and their winter training cycle starts after Thanksgiving and goes to March. And during that time, they start at the lowest level of training, individual squad level training, and progress until March when they are conducting large-scale uh, combined arms maneuver. And March is the optimal time to attack South Korea because the ground is still hard, you know, the rice paddies haven't been planted, you know, mechanized maneuver uh, is optimized at that time. That is why we have conducted, up until 1993, we always conducted team spirit in March, which used to be the largest exercise in the free world. And we would reinforce the peninsula with, with U.S. forces. We'd conduct a large-scale maneuver exercise to bring South Korea and U.S. forces to the highest state of readiness in case of an attack. And so, uh, and of course, in 1993, I participated in the last Team Spirit there, and uh, and we, we ended that in support of the Agreed Framework in 94. Uh, and we went for a couple of years without an exercise there until the military leaders convinced the political leaders that we needed to have uh, exercises you know, at that time for the reason I stated. Uh, we started with RSOI, evolved to Key Resolve, and now we're naming them, you know, Dongbane, you know, Zero... 2201 and 2202. So we keep changing the names on those, but, uh, but uh, the need for exercise is important. Uh, okay. um, I admire your, your entire kind of integrated approach here. Because um, one, one of the problems, of course, with the collapse of the Soviet Union was that there really wasn't any kind of real planning for what to do. Uh, to bring them into the civilized world, and I think you know there should have been a massive Marshall Plan that maybe would have would have prevented the lost decade of the nineties. Uh, but still, you know, Kim uh, Jong and and family are are fanatics, and they're they're not going to go. They're not going to go quietly. They're not going to go. Period. And any kind of breakup scenario or, or regime collapse, it seems going to maybe 70% fall for. And if they have these nuclear weapons, they're going to use them. Because, you know, this is this is a dead-end little isolated republic. And so it just seems that no matter what, 
the more the more pressing thing is to try to prevent the the, the, the development and the, the uh, you know like mounting of these things on missiles um, because that that just you know that that will lead to total total annihilation if if they're used anywhere um, and and as a as a corollary what um, uh, are do you know that that any of his missiles actually can reach Alaska and, and uh, California? Has that been really verified by? Well, I, I don't know that for a fact. Uh, some of the, the reports that I've read, uh, you know, based on the tests that they've done, they project that they can reach uh, even right here, Washington D.C. There have been some projections. Uh, I can't verify that, I, and I don't think we'll, you know, nobody will ever know unless they unless they do it. <coughs> You know, the, the intelligence analysts are certainly looking at that at that very, very hard. I think it's important to understand your question. When Wang Chengyup defected, um, you know, he was asked, you know, Kim Il-sung, Kim Jong-il had spent all this money developing the North Korean military. Why haven't they attacked? You know, they, they have developed the fourth largest military in the world, you know, the creeping normalcy, forward positioning, and they, they haven't attacked. And he apparently said, uh, you know, the reason is, they know they can't win a war against the South as long as the U.S. supports it. And they believe that if they do attack the South, the U.S. will use nuclear weapons. And so that tells us, you know, one thing our declaratory policy works, our support to South Korea is a deterrence, our presence of U.S. forces. Uh, but it also tells us why they've been pursuing nuclear weapons since the 1950s. And, and I think that, uh, and, you know, the scary part of your question there is I don't think North Korea use nuclear weapons with the same kind of taboo that we do. Uh, I, I think that, uh, like, if there is a war, they are going to use nuclear weapons. Uh, and uh, I, I think that they will use them to uh, destroy port facilities, destroy the seven UN bases in Japan. Uh, I believe that their campaign plan uh, requires rapid occupation of the peninsula before the South Korean military can mobilize before the U.S. can reinforce the peninsula. And so nuclear weapons and chemical weapons as well uh, to attack the South Korean workforce who are critical to the operation of the ports uh, and, and uh, you know, for reinforcements, uh, I think that, uh, that they will use them as a matter of course, integrated into their, their plans. I don't think they'll use them as last resort. I don't think they'll use them as desperation. I think that they are part and partial to their campaign plan. And that's a scary thing, and that's why we want to prevent war. That's why, also, information is so important. You know, I want to talk to the, the North Korean commanders, the, the core commanders, the frontline commanders. You know, if I were king for a day, I would have the South Korean soldiers the, conducting patrols on the DMZ, dropping off bags of cell phones. I'd have Samsung develop cell towers all along the DMZ, you know, and I would I would try to connect with the the, uh, the commanders. You know, I'd love to have the, the commanders in the South be able to talk with the commanders in the North. But what we want to do is we want South Korea to have a policy that if you don't attack the South, you'll have a place in a unified Korea. We want to give them options, you know, options to not follow orders. Now, it may or may not work, but to me, it's a pretty low-cost investment to try to make it work. You know, if you remember, uh, the West Germans provided amnesty letters to the East German commanders. And most of them said, ah, you know, we're not going to follow this. Now, we couldn't do that in North Korea. Uh, but we can establish policies, or South Korea can establish policies. We can transmit that information, and we can give them options. 
and it may or may not come to fruition. But when the wall came down in, in Germany, those East German uh, generals, they had those amnesty letters. They wanted their compensation, you know, and so uh, I think it's worth a try. Uh, we should be exhausting every information influence possibility to try to influence those, those core commanders. Uh, everybody who has control of WMD. I mean, the basic thing is maintain control and security of your weapons of mass destruction until they can be rendered safe by appropriate authorities. You know, that, that's a basic message that they need, to, they need to achieve. We don't want them to use them. We don't want them to proliferate them. We don't want loose nukes. Uh, we want to give them the, the opportunity and, you know, that they'll be compensated if they act in accordance with, uh, you know, the policies that are established. So those are the kind of things that we need to do. But um, you're right. Uh, collapse, it, it is, it, it's, it's not something we want to risk, risk for. But we need to prepare for it, and uh, because it's it will be catastrophic. Sure. Carol, thank you for coming to speak. This I wanted to ask about the Ukraine and space space interaction during 2018, and specifically, a lot of people often disregard those interactions as for show and that diplomacy doesn't work. But in your opinion, does face-to-face -face interaction between Moon Jae-in and Kim Jong-un and future South Korean leaders have an effect in pushing towards what you argue for? for either through building trust with face-to-face -face diplomacy or in allowing North Korean people to see some level of humanization of South Korean leaders? Uh, that's a great question. I, I agree. I believe in engagement. You know, I mean, as much as we, you know, we you know, criticized what happened in 2018, um, you know, you could, you know, say that it, it, in many ways, I mean, it did take things for the future uh, because of those direct engagements that didn't pan out. Um, you know, Trump established the red line of no missile test, no ICBM test, no nuclear test, and that became the red line, and therefore everything less than that, you know, and we've seen, you know, this is the year of missile tests. You know, I think 19 missile tests have taken place so far this year. Uh, so, uh, I think, and of course, I think that that red line also, I think Kim Jong-un tried to exploit that with the Biden administration, you know, to say that you know, the test of the ICBM is Biden's fault, you know, and if Trump was still in power that uh, he wouldn't have done that. So I, I think that, that those are the kind of things uh, that, it, that it causes there. Um, but uh, you know, engagement is good. In fact, people ask me what, what caused Moon Jae-in's policy to fail. Now, I think his policy, I didn't agree with it. I think it was a policy of appeasement. Uh, but you know, he had this peace agenda. He wanted to be the peace. But when he went to, uh, the, his policy effectively ended on September 19, 2018. In Pyongyang, when he gave a speech, a public speech to the people in Pyongyang, and and what happened is he gave this speech again that was panned in the South by conservatives because it was too conciliatory, you know, it was too much, you know, North and South together. But the Korean people in the North listened to that and they were impressed. They saw an articulate man who was passionate about Korea and who defied all of the caricatures of propaganda. And Kim Jong-un realized, realized at the time that he made a strategic mistake. He allowed Moon Jae-in to talk, and that undermined all of the previous propaganda. And if you look from that date on, there was no more North-South engagement after that point. And you, you follow the propaganda, they reverted to the old days of, of just vilifying Moon Jae-in and the South Korean leaders, because they had to restore that propaganda you know, an indoctrination of the minds of the Korean people in the North. And so, uh, so my point is, 
that the more engagement that there can be, the more contact with people, that is good for us. That that opens up. But that's a threat. You know, President Trump's mantra was, if Kim Jong-un makes the right strategic decision, then there will be a brighter future. Well, the right strategic decision, of course, was to denuclearize, and the brighter future was economic engagement. We didn't understand, or, well, some people didn't understand, that both of those are a threat to the existence of Kim Jong-un. You know, he's not going to give up his nuclear weapons. And if he gets economic engagement, that comes with people-to-people -people contact. That comes with companies investing. That comes with information into the North. So that's a threat as well. So it was not, you know, they made this uh, video with, uh, you know, an iPad that showed, uh, you know, hotels in Wonsan. Uh, and, you know, that was not enticing, you know, and, and, that, and that's typical of us as Americans. We make things that, uh, from our perspective, that make sense to us, but I don't think we had a good understanding of Kim Jong-un and what he wants and what motivates him. And, uh, and so uh, that was problematic. If I may, as a quick follow-up, since, since you say that Kim Jong-un's stock is interaction with the media, and after that September 2018 day, as a result of fearing to undermine his own propaganda, why didn't he continue meeting with Trump, even in that sporadic DMZ summit in which he came to the DMZ when Trump tweeted at him? Why did he continue that interaction and allow that interaction to be on broadcast from the crowd? Uh, I think uh, part of it was that he believed he could get a deal. He believed, I mean, and I think, you know, when you think about it, you know, Kim Jong-un really did mess up because both Moon and Trump were two most likely to make a deal with him. You know, the stars were, were aligned. And, but he, he would not budge, and uh, you know he wouldn't make a deal. You know it had to be on his terms, and uh, and he couldn't get what he wanted. And you know I'm thankful to, to both Moon and, and Trump that they didn't give in uh, to to uh, to Kim Jong Un. Uh, but you know Kim Jong Un could have made a deal. He could have given up. You know, I mean, you know we how many times have we bought young young nuclear power? You know I mean we've you know, we bought it a few times, and we could have bought it again. You know, and, uh, uh, you know, but uh, he wouldn't give up enough to, to get uh, to get what he needed. Uh, anyway, uh, thank you so much for doing this, Colonel. So, my question, I guess, I have two separate questions you want to ask. I guess the first is, um, do you discuss how if uh, if Kim Jong Un feels regime collapse is imminent, he might turn to nuclear weapons? Right. So I guess my first question is. Uh, I, I didn't say nuclear. I said he will turn to his attack plan. Right. Turning to right, right, right. And so that increases the risk, right? So I guess my first question is just: um, Do you think that there's a risk that supporting internal resistance could increase the chances of him fearing for regime collapse and then thereby accelerate potential nuclear conflict? Um, and then second, I guess um, we've heard talks, um, especially on the campaign trail, about potential tactical nuclear weapons being deployed to. Uh, South Korea. So I guess, what are your thoughts on that as well? Yeah. Well, certainly, yes. Internal resistance, that, that's a problem. And whether we support it or not, it, it's going to grow. Uh, and it's going to happen. So we got to be ready for that. I, I think, uh, you know, I advocate supporting it and supporting it with policies, with information. Not, not direction, not, uh, you know, not putting boots on the ground, uh, you know, as much as I'd like to. Uh, you, know, you know, by providing them options, you know, to see what comes next. That's how I would, I would support. If there's new emergent leadership, these are the opportunities for, for North Korea and the Korean people in the North. So that's that's how I look at, at resistance inside. Uh, tactical nuclear weapons, you know, I, 
to me, it doesn't, I mean, there's, anybody who, who advocates tactical nuclear weapons, you know, I, I ask the question of, tell me your concept for employment of those nuclear weapons. How are you going to employ nuclear weapons to achieve military objectives or political objectives? Uh, the only thing that, that people really want to tackle nuclear weapons is for making some kind of statement, you know, some kind of, you know, thinking that has a deterrent effect. The fact is, U.S. policy has always been that we don't confirm or deny the presence of, of nuclear weapons. You know, when, when I was in Korea in the 80s, you know, we had to secure some of the nuclear weapon sites. You know, those were not made public. You know, those, people didn't know where they were. And of course, if we publicly deploy tactical nuclear weapons to, uh, to Korea, that would make every single U.S. base a target for protesters. You know, think about the South Korean population and how they would oppose that, you know, certain factions of it. I mean, many people support it, of course, but, you know, South Korea is a democratic country, and there are people that will oppose uh, the presence of nuclear weapons. And it will make what's happening at the FAD missile site now, where the THAAD battery is, that's that's completely isolated because of protesters. Uh, the, the soldiers that are living there have to have food flown in. Uh, they are living in terrible conditions because the South Korean government is unable to uh, stop the protests uh, and they cut the ground lines of the communications. Uh, so if there were nuclear weapons in the South, uh, it, would, it, it would really cause uh, some real tough political problems. But we also would not achieve the effects that we that some desire because unless we change our policy, we're not going to confirm or deny the presence of nuclear weapons. Uh, so it really, you know, what what are we really trying to do? But more importantly, how will we use tactical nuclear weapons to fight a war? That that's the question. I want because the fact is that we don't need nuclear weapons to defeat North Korea. Our conventional weapons can can destroy North Korea. Every single target in North Korea. We don't need nuclear weapons. They're not that uh, that useful uh, in a wartime scenario. Uh, they are only useful, you know, in a deterrence uh, perspective. And uh, you know, and the fact that if Kim Jong Un uses a single weapon of mass destruction, we had better respond decisively uh, to that use. And in my opinion, the decisive response to that means no more Kim Jong Un. You know, that, uh, that that needs to be the end point of our declaratory policy. They use weapons of mass destruction. We respond decisively to prevent any further use. And that means the end of Kim Jong-un. So uh, that's my my opinion, not uh, not U.S. policy. So don't, don't quote me. Okay. You're saying that's U.S. policy. I think yeah. the gentleman in the back uh, had a question. Yeah, uh, Colonel, thank you for speaking with us today. Chinese have been trying to, to influence the North to adopt that. You know, ever, I mean, for, for decades they've tried to. And the problem with that is, you know, to reform means what they've done before is, is wrong. And yeah. they built a system, you know, that where the, the leadership is, you know, I mean, they're godlike. You know, that they 
they're omnipotent, you know, and omniscient. They don't do anything wrong. So to, to reform and make those Chinese-style reforms, uh, they're not going to do. Okay? So, uh, you know, because to do will undermine the legitimacy of the regime. So, so Kim Jong-un and Kim Jong-il, they were offered opportunities to, you know, China would be so willing to help them help them change. Um, they also don't need to look at Saddam Hussein or Gaddafi or anything. They look, look at what South Korea has done to their own presidents to, to wonder how they would turn out in, the, in that situation. Uh, but in my in my estimation, if there's unification, there will be no more elite. Okay, that's that is you know either war collapse. Uh, there's not going to be a negotiated peaceful unification. Uh, the only way is if there is new emerging leadership that seeks peaceful unification. Uh, the elite that fear unification, uh, you know, they're not going to support it. You know, they're going to either try to leave, or uh, you know, or something will happen to them internally. Uh, so I don't think that that's that's you know to South Korea, uh, Korean people saying they don't want unification. Uh, you know, that's you look at the this, the uh, the polls, and there are lots of polls that say people are turning against it. Uh, I think if you if you ask Koreans. Um, and the way you ask the question is important. You know, do you support unification? Do you want unification? Most people will say yes. Do you want to pay for unification? Hell no. You know, so it depends on what question or how you ask the question. My my retort to you though is, okay, what what's the alternative? So do you want to? You know, if something happens inside North Korea, there's war, there's collapse, uh, there's you know, the, the leadership, something happens to Kim Jong Un. Do we just want to isolate North Korea and let 25 million Koreans in the North continue to suffer? Do you think that the, the Koreans in the South will actually allow that to happen? You know, what they say now is one thing. You know, when something happens, you know, I think, here's, here's the, 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 the story that I tell. I had a, a Korean admiral, I was having lunch with him, and he told me there's two miracles in Korea. I think you all know the miracle in the Han. Korea has uh, risen from the ashes of the war, become a democracy, you know, tenth largest economy in the world, you know, developed this soft power, K-pop, and, uh, and, and really has become, you know, a, a major middle power. Only country in the world, the only developed country in the world to go from a major aid recipient to a major donor nation. You know, pretty impressive uh, what South Korea has, has done. I mean, amazing. Well, I said, okay, what's the second miracle? He said, the second miracle is the miracle on the Taedong. Taedong is the river that goes through Pyongyang like the Han goes through Seoul. I said, well, what miracle is that? He said, the miracle is after 70 years, the Korean people in the North continue to survive. <laughs> and, and, what he, and, and what he what he meant by that is that, you know, in Korea, the Korean people, the spirit of the Han, you know, that if given the opportunity, they will thrive. And of course, Korea had no history of democracy, you know, free market economy, all the things they've developed. There was no history. And until 1945, there was one Korea, you know, of course, at the time, uh, under the uh, colonization of Japan, uh, but going back 5,000 years of, of Korean history, one Korea. So they split in 1945. And, and in, in the North, you know, the people, when faced with hardship, they survive. Given opportunity, they survive, or they thrive. And faced with hardship, they survive. You look what happened in the, the arduous march of 1994 to 1996. And how North Korea survived. Sunshine policy in the South transferred billions of dollars to the regime. The regime survived. 
But when the public distribution system of the Communist Party and the, the regime failed, markets arose. That's why we have 400 markets there. That developed a resiliency inside North Korea. A nascent capitalist system exists inside North Korea. And a lot of entrepreneurial spirit. You know, so if you give the Korean people in the North the opportunity, they will thrive. And that is, that is what makes one Korean. Uh, it, it, both North and South Korea, one Korean. Now, uh, the transfer of wealth, I, I disagree with that. You know, I disagree that it's just, you're not just going to give, uh, you know, you know, go from a thousand dollars a year, you know, of, uh, of uh, personal income, you know, up to the twenty thousand dollar, you know, in the South, you know, whatever the, the level is. You're not just going to give them nineteen thousand dollars each person. No. They, they've got to develop, you know, and, and again, the lessons, you know, we talk about a Marshall Plan. Marshall Plan is, is you know, was unique to Europe. I think we should all remember that to, to countries that were, were developed. But we use Marshall Plan as a shorthand, you know, to say help development. But after the Korean War, we stunted the farming, uh, the agricultural development of the South. Why? Because we were such good people. We were giving rice to South Korea. We were giving bags of, you know, I mean, tons of rice to South Korea so farmers didn't have to farm. And throughout the 1950s, we were given you know, all kinds of aid to South Korea, and they weren't developing. It wasn't until you know, 1960, 61, we realized that we need to stop giving aid, and we need to help them build their own institutions. You know, and that's, of course, what happened from 1960 to 1979 in the Miracle of Han. Korea developed their own institutions. Now, you can argue the political system of Park Chung-hee, uh, but you know, the development of institutions are what's important, not giving people aid. So, in the North, we don't want to just give people aid. <coughs> what we want to do is see the Korean people in the North own their land. We want to trans, you know, transfer from this communist socialist, you know, to a, a country of free people. And so, if you're a farmer, you know, and I, I jokingly tell my Korean counterparts that you should be mapping all of Korea. You should be developing titles to all the land right now. And so, when collapse occurs, that you've got, you know, Mr. Kim, and Mr. Park. You know, and Ms. Lee, you know, they're going to get the titles to their land. And they're going to own that. And that's important because we don't want a large refugee flow. You know, people will stay put. And, and people want to live where, they, where they've lived all their life. You know, even the 30,000 escapees still want to go back to the north. They want to go back to their homes. You know, and so we need to use that. Or South Korea needs to use that as a way uh, for unification. So I think that uh, we can make those arguments that uh, they don't want it. Um, South Korea's got to be tough. They got to exercise leadership. They got to plan for it. Whether people want it or not, you got to plan for it. Uh, all, all military failures. And somebody I meant to say this to, in response to one of the questions. Elliot Cohen and John Gooch wrote a book called Military Misfortune. All military failures are a result of three things: failure to learn, failure to adapt, failure to anticipate. And it's the third one. We we learn, we adapt, but anticipate. And I think we need to anticipate these scenarios, and we need to plan for them. You know, whether they happen or not, uh, you know, it's better to have a plan than to not have a plan uh, when, uh, when something happens. You talked about influencing the next generation of leaders. And when Kim Il-sung died, everyone believed, the community believed, um, Kim Jong-il, he's a reformist. Uh, he'd spent a little time in Malta, and, and of course, he was more brutal than his father. When he died, Everyone said, oh, you know, Kim Jong-un, because he spent his, his teen years in Switzerland, you know, that he would be a reformist. 
and yet he turned out to be even more brutal than his father or grandfather. So my question is, how do you get, how do, A, how do you identify the, the, the elites, the next generation? How do you get to them? Because they've seen what's what's available in the South. They have the cell phones. They see the, 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 the K-pop. They've seen the dramas. But yet there's that conflict. They may realize, most of them do, this is a corrupt society, that, or, or, or this is inequality. They're so fearful. So how, how do you, one, identify them, two, how do you get to them? That's a great question. One of my good friends, Kim Kwang Jin, escaped from North Korea. Uh, he, uh, he ran uh, an element at Department 39 in Singapore. He was going to be called back to, uh, to North Korea. He was going to be punished. So surprisingly, his wife and his son were with him. And so they escaped. And his son, in fact, in 2010 or 11, graduated from Fairfax County High School as the uh, valedictorian. He came to the United States, uh, couldn't speak English, and graduated from high school. So, um, so uh, I ask this of Kim Kwong Jin all the time. Uh, you know, what, what are people thinking? Like, explain to me the mindset. They know what's going on in the outside world. And his answer to me was quite shocking. Uh, please forgive me as I say this. He said, all Korean people in the North are liars. And I thought, whoa, I mean, that's, a, that's a terrible thing to say. And what he explained to me was that uh, that in Korea, you have to lie first to yourself. You have to lie to your parents. You have to lie to your friends. You have to lie to your political leaders and in order to survive. Because you cannot express how you really feel to anyone. And, and so when he said, and this leads to, uh, and this knowledge from the outside world combined with this, leads to what he calls a psychological paralysis. And, you know, it's really cognitive dissonance, but it's, it's, he calls it a psychological paralysis, where they have to survive first. And even though, you know, they want the outside you know, world, they, they, you know, it's, it's fascinating to them, they, uh, you know, they have to survive. And so, you know, every week they have to go to these uh, uh, you know, the sessions, the confession sessions, you know, and, and they have to... Uh, and what, of course, the regime is doing is they're just collecting information on all the bad things people do and, and so that they can use them later to prosecute. Uh, but my point is that we can't know who is going to... We can't identify. I mean, it's hard for us internally to, to identify those who have, uh, uh, have the right stuff, you know, who's going to emerge. But as I look at escapees, I see tremendous potential. These guys, they came from North Korea. And they have adapted and they grew. There is potential inside North Korea. We just can't identify it. So my point is, we need to cast a wide net, large amounts of information. And, and I mean, it's it's kind of like, you know, we're, we're going to throw mud against the wall and see what sticks. You know, I mean, yeah, uh, you know, I I didn't want to say, uh, someone, hope is not a course of action, as General Sullivan used to say. But I am kind of talking about hope is a course of action. You know, we hope that there will be some. But it's more than hope. I know that there will be, I believe that there will be people that will emerge. And uh, and that's why we need to use information to try to do that. We just can't identify and control from the way that we would we would like to identify those as in, you know, other places identify emerging political leaders, support them, uh, you know, give them resources and things like that. That's not going to happen inside the North, inside North Korea, I don't think. Well, I think, you know, you mentioned paralysis. I mean, I, I met a number of North Korean diplomats when I served overseas. And I remember talking to one who was a, a legitimate foreign affairs, Ministry of Foreign Affairs, 
And he had been to Europe and different folks and spoke fluent English, graduate of Kimmelsheim University. Uh, and I remember talking to him about, you know, the condition, the economic conditions in North Korea. And I showed him pictures of the, uh, the hotel that has no windows right, right. or working toilets. Uh, and he was tilting to one side. And I said, you know, what about this? And his answer surprised, surprised me. And it wasn't, I didn't get a sense it was this paralysis or lying. He said, yeah, we're aware of that. But you know what? We'll fix it ourselves. So part of that is the whole Juche concept, you know, yeah. self-reliance. But I think there really are uh, a number of, of, and I'm not trying to defend the regime, but there are a number of very patriotic people in the North who, who believe, whether, whether they're being fed lies or, or, or they honestly believe it, but just in the country itself, you know, that, that we will survive. That is so important to understand because, you know, a lot of the, the, the propaganda that the, the escapees send North can you know, just vilify the regime and, and, no, that's the kind of thing we need to understand. Um, I, a young woman uh, escaped, and, um, and she told her story that she believed she was free inside North Korea because she was told she was free. Because their constitution has freedom of expression, freedom of religion. All those things are built into, into that. So she believed that she was free because she was told she was free. It wasn't until she arrived in South Korea that she realized what freedom she And she says this, I was wrong. I had no concept of freedom inside North Korea. Although it, it pained me to hear her say this, she said, but when I was in, in Seoul, I was still very afraid that I might see an American soldier. Because we were taught that American soldiers occupy South Korea and that they would abuse Korean women at their will. So she was deathly afraid of seeing an American soldier. Uh, she eventually came to Washington here and she said the same thing. When she saw Washington, she realized what, what freedom was. But I think that's, that is something I don't think we can comprehend. Because we have, you know, we've lived in, in freedom. And we can't imagine what it is like for, for somebody to, uh, uh, you know, to experience that. But yet, you know, she evolved. You know, she was exposed to the outside world. She's successful. You know, we're seeing Koreans from the North be very successful. I mean, they're human beings. And they can be successful if given the opportunity. And that's what we need to focus on. You know, is, is you know, the, the message is you, have a, a, you can have a good life in a unified Korea. And, uh, and that's, those are the kind of things that we should be making a concerted effort to try to, to, to try to influence them. You've already had one, so. So this is in Korea, Japan, Morrow Korea, Japan, USSR, China, and we're excited to think because I'm in five years. I just wanted to ask you, where do you see North Korea going from here? How do they respond to this? For a week's time, we've been hearing that that's another Well, they've already they've already responded to that as well as the concept of the Asian native. We're hearing them, uh, both them and China, uh, talk about that. I think that uh, I think you know, both China and North Korea, um, you know, may have uh, miscalculated. You know, because it is a good thing that there is improving trilateral cooperation between Iraq, U.S., and Japan. Both North Korea and China does not like that. You know, remember what President Moon was forced into with the three no's, you know, with Xi Jinping. You know, no more THAAD deployments, uh, no integrated missile defense, and no trilateral alliance. Uh, you know, they are afraid of, of that. So uh, the, the return to cooperation, I think, is really good. Uh, there's a long way to go. There's a lot of problems, as everyone knows, 
between Korea and Japan, historical issues. You know, my, my belief is that President Yoon and Prime Minister Kishida have to both pledge to put national security and national prosperity first while they manage the historical issues and not allow historical issues to impact on security and prosperity. But, um, but the, the exercises that will be conducted, I hope it's an integrated missile defense exercise. I'm not sure. You know, they're talking about August that there will be uh, uh, some kind of trilateral exercise. We will conduct the major exercise that we conduct every year in August. Uh, but um, I think it's a good it's a good thing. And of course, the Biden administration's uh, Indo-Pacific strategy, the seventh point of the ten point action plan in their strategy is improve trilateral cooperation between Rock, U.S., and Japan. Uh, and we see the administration. Uh, you know, working on that, you know, the trilateral summit that just took place in Spain, uh, and you know, now bilateral meetings between the, the foreign ministers are going to take place in Singapore this week. So, uh, so I think that's a good thing. Whether North Korea conducts a, uh, a nuclear test in response to that, you know, I think we have to also be careful about uh, North Korea's tests. Uh, we tend to think that everything that they do is a message to us, and it may very well be. Uh, but it also, they have to test to improve their capabilities, to develop their capabilities. Uh, you know, and, and they may be at the point where they need to conduct a test to move to the next stage. Uh, now, the timing could be, you know, significant, uh, but it also could be that they just have to test uh, to move to the next level. Uh, and so we we have to assess it. We have to try to understand it. But it's not always all about us, you know. And uh, so, will they conduct a nuclear? test in response to trilateral exercises, maybe. Uh, but one thing I would say that every time they conduct a provocation, it is a chance for us to respond to show that Kim Jong-un's strategy will not work. We are not going to give in. And, and I think we've done that very well in the last few months. 19 missile tests. We've deployed strategic assets to Guam twice, now going to be a third time. F-35s to Kadena and Okinawa, and now to South Korea. Carrying a battle group in the East Sea, you know, instead of backing down, you know, we are demonstrating strength and resolve. And every time he conducts a provocation, we just need to quietly continue conducting exercises to show Kim Jong Un that he is not going to be successful in achieving his objectives through provocations and threats and, and increased tensions. Yeah. Anybody else here? You read? <laughs> I, I have a question. Dr. <laughs> so you mentioned um, the uh, internal resistance uh, inside North Korea, and I agree with you that it is one of the key elements um, for us to bring about the Korean unification. Um, and I was wondering, do you think there's any possibility of a coup specifically from the senior leadership of North Korea? Yeah, so uh, uh, Sungmin Cho, Cho Sungmin, he's a professor out of Asia Pacific. Uh, uh, Security Center out in Hawaii. Uh, he got his PhD at Georgetown when he was when he was getting his PhD. You know, he and I spent some time together. He wrote a great article. Part of his PhD, he assessed the history of political assassinations, mm -hmm. and he you know and he looked at the potential for a political assassination against Kim Jong Un. And after studying assassinations around the world, he concluded that the only way that Kim Jong Un could be assassinated would have to be a scenario similar to the assassination of Park Chung-hee. Somebody with access and placement, you know, who would take action, you know, and, you know, there won't be a, a coup, there won't be uh, collective action because the system is designed uh, to prevent that, you know. 
because everybody tells on each other. So, you know, we couldn't have this conversation, uh, you know, inside North Korea because you would tell your, you know, your superiors, I would tell mine. So, I so it's unlikely there'll be that collective action. But the most likely way will be somebody who acts out, somebody within the elite who has access and placement. Um, Young Sung Lee, who's uh, escapee, uh, he was in the uh, demonstration unit in Pyongyang, and part of his military service he went from the Fourth Corps uh, to that that unit. And he was telling me that uh, his unit, uh, other than the bodyguard command closest to Kim, the only ones inside Pyongyang who were allowed to have live ammunition for their demonstrations. Every other military person, every policeman, that nobody has live weapons, live ammunition, except those who guard uh, Kim Jong-un. And of course, you know, that means you know, he's pretty well protected, mm -hmm. and, uh, and it's unlikely there'll be collective action. But somebody within the inner circle, within the elite, you, know, you never know. And, uh, so uh, there's no way to project that. But Sungman Cho's work is, uh, is I think, pretty, pretty useful. Well, thank you, Colonel, and thank you, everybody, for coming today. Thank <laughs> you.